Genesis chapter 26 is really the only chapter in the book of Genesis that focuses completely on Isaac. Uh, Isaac is Abraham's son, and he's the father of Jacob. And so in the book of Genesis, you've got a lot about Abraham. Like most of our study in the book of Genesis has been dealing with Abraham from Genesis 12 all the way into the 20s. And then soon it's going to transition to Jacob. And we're going to study Jacob almost to the end of the book of Genesis. And sort of almost a transitional character is Isaac. And so we've read some other stories and some accounts about his life, but they've really had to do more with those who are around him than Isaac being the focal point. Right? You remember the near sacrifice of Isaac, which was really more about Abraham than it was about Isaac. Then we read about Abraham um, sending his trusted servant to find a wife for Isaac, which was really more about the trusted servant and Abraham than it was about Isaac. Uh, we read about uh, Isaac's marriage to Rebekah and the birth of their sons, Jacob and Esau, which is primarily about Jacob and Esau. And then next week, we're going to read about Isaac um, blessing his youngest son, Jacob, when he thinks that he's blessing his oldest son, Esau. And so chapter 26, though, is the only chapter where Isaac is the, the main character. We're going to read a lot about his life and his journey of faith here in chapter 26. He lived to be 180 years old. So not a lot of text that is devoted to him for a man that lived 180 years, but we've definitely got quite a bit that we can read here in chapter 26. So let me say a couple of things that are truths that we're going to find worked out in this chapter. And I want you to hear them and be thinking of them so that you can see how it's true in what we read. I'd normally build up and say these at the very end of the sermon, but today I want to give them at the very beginning because I think it's going to help us to recognize some things about God in this chapter. We're going to read about the life of Isaac. And we're going to read about uh, how he moves and how he moves his family and the decisions that he makes and what his relationship with God is like and how he trusts in God and how uh, God is faithful to him and how God encourages him and God keeps him moving through difficult circumstances. And we're going to see how God's providence works out in Isaac's life. And it provides us with a helpful understanding of God's providence in our own life. So let me define providence so that we're on the same page. Okay, providence is the working of God's plan in your life. It is the unfolding of God's plan in your life. And and when you look at everything that happens in your life, right, all the circumstances and all the decisions and all the good and all the bad, here's the question. How much of that is a part of God's plan? How much of that is a part of God's providence? And the answer is, Uh Uh-oh. Okay, good. All of it. All of it. So everything that comes to pass, our Lord is, our God is in the heaven and He does a lot of what He pleases. Is that what Scripture says? (laughs) 
He does what? All that He pleases. Ephesians 1. What is He doing? He's working everything, everything together according to His purpose. His pleasure and His will. So there's nothing in your life that is not a, that, that's outside of His plan. There's no, there's no curveballs. There's no sliders. There's no throwing Him for a loop. There's no surprises for God where He's reacting to things He didn't see coming. No, it's all according to His plan. So God has, the word is a decree, a blueprint, a plan. And He's decided this is how your life is going to go. Now some of you hear that and that makes you immediately upset with God. Because now you've got someone to blame is what you think. Because you're not all that happy about how your life is going. And you're not all that happy about how your life is turning out. And there would be many moments in Genesis 26 where Isaac could not be all that happy about how his life was turning out and how his life was going. But it is a reality that God is in charge of your life. He numbers your days. He authors your days. He controls how many hairs from your head you're going to shed today. That's a detail-oriented God. He knows your tomorrow. You're going to make your plan, but what is He going to do? He's going to direct your steps according to His blueprint. And His plan. So everything that happens in your life, all the circumstances of your life, they are all a part of God's providence, which means they are all a part of God's plan. When we read the story of Isaac, we see God's good providence. We see God's good plan. We see how God gets him out of this jam and out of this jam and how God causes him to be more thankful and how God reveals himself as faithful and how God gives Isaac more, more fuel to love God and more reason to love God. We see how God works for the good of Isaac who loves him, which God says he does in, in Romans chapter 8. But we see him doing it actually back here. God working for the good of Isaac. We see God's good providence. But here's the other thing to to not miss. We see God's good providence, but we also see his this is another helpful word. We see God's difficult providence for Isaac. And we'll pay attention to that. The, the Christian life is not a charmed life. Okay, the Christian life is not a life where um, turn to Jesus and all your physical problems will go away. All your material problems will go away. You just need to have enough faith. That's not, that's not true. And that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is that you, you, you may or may not have physical and material blessing. It may or may not go well physically and materially for you. That's entirely up to God. But however it goes for you, physically and materially, God has decided that that is exactly what you need for your best spiritually. And God's concerned for your soul. And we're concerned for your soul. So God's providence for Isaac, it's a good providence, but it is a difficult providence. It is a painful providence. His life is not just this charmed, uphill, no struggles, 
No obstacles, no suffering, no pain, absolute clarity. I mean, you've met Christians like this before and you're like, do they ever have a bad day? And they do. They just hide it. They just hide it. Because Isaac's life, we'll see, is like this. Now God is moving him upward. God is maturing him. God is, the uh, Bible uses the word, God is sanctifying him. God is, is, is making him a tree that is planted by streams of water which will yield its fruit in season. God's doing good in his life. But the way God is doing that is through a lot of difficulty. Let's read and see if that's true. Because if it's true, if it's true, there is, believe it or not, there is encouragement for us in that. So you're not surprised. You're not surprised by the trial that you're in right now or the trial that's around the corner that you don't see. So you're not surprised by that. So when that trial comes or when that trial is, you don't take it to mean that God no longer has a plan for you because it's actually the way God tends to work with his people. It's through a lot of difficulty and a lot of struggle and suffering and pain. And it's better for us and it's good for us, and he has our best interests in mind. So let's see if this is true. Beginning in Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So one famine here, one famine that took place before. We read about that in Genesis chapter 12. Isaac's dad Abraham lived through a famine. And now Isaac is living through a famine. We don't totally understand a famine and how difficult that would be. Uh, when there's a famine, it makes it, it means that Essential resources are scarce. Essential resources like food and water. Most of us, we don't, we don't know what that's like. Now, we know what difficulty's like. And, and we, we freak out when our reservoirs right, don't have as much water in them. But we have reservoirs with water in them, right? We have saved up water. We're doing okay. We're doing well. A famine is where you don't have food or water and tomorrow you're not sure where you're going to get food or water and one of your children looks like they're about to die because they're emaciated and they're having trouble breathing and they're skin and bones because you, you can't get them enough food and water in them. And you're not sure where the meal is going to come tomorrow. Resources are scarce. This is a big time trial in Isaac's life. And, and when big time trials come to Christians, we know, according to 1 Peter 1, that it is God who is grieving those he loves with trials. And he's grieving those he loves with trials because he loves them. That doesn't work with anyone else in your life. Anyone else grieves you with a trial, you do not take it as their love for you. 
their affection for you. But with God, who's in control of all things, He designs our life in such a way that these difficult times are for our good and for our best. So what is it in this case? Well, He sends uh, a sense of famine. So much worse than a recession, right? Much worse than the government shutting down, believe it or not. This is much worse. But it comes with temptation. A lot of temptation. So be sure Isaac is tempted to uh, discontentment right now. Just like you, you know, though you may not have lived through a famine, you know what it's like not to be able to pay your bills. You know what it's like not to have money in the bank. You know what it's like to be in financial distress. Some of you may even know what it's like to go without meals. And so you know what that produces. It produces temptation to doubt God, uh, to be fearful, uh, to, be ang- to have, have anxiety, to, uh, to be discontent, okay? maybe to uh, idolatry, start worshiping things and following things other than God that seem to meet the needs that you want met quicker than God does. Those who are doing well, we envy them or we're jealous of them. So it comes with a ton of temptation. And and he's faced with that. So what Isaac decides to do, according to verse 1, and it's a good thing to do, he's going to head south. He's going to head south because he, he can't find enough food and water to take care of his family. But things are going better south. Things are going better in Egypt. So he starts heading southward to Provide for his family. He needs to take care of him. Verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to you your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So God comes to Isaac on his journey south and says, that's far enough. Don't go any further. Don't go down to Egypt. I want you to stay put where you are, even if, here's a helpful principle, even if circumstances look much better in Egypt. Okay, I, I, so for Isaac, the grass is greener, right? The grass is greener in Egypt. And so he's doing what seems to make sense. So I'm going to go where the grass is green. It's about halfway. And then God says, I want you to stop. God has a plan for him here. I don't want you to go any further. God often, you read God's word, You're convicted. You know what God wants you to do. And what God wants you to do is is often uh, hard. Some of you are nodding. Yes. Often what God wants you to do is is hard. And, And often God wants you to stay in the hard place. He wants you to stay in the hard place. We're very, we're very quick, probably because we live in the land of opportunity. So uh, we don't get stuck very often. Right? We, we build, we, we don't commit to anything, right? Unless we can see where the back door is built in. You got to make sure there's a back door to that thing. We're thinking that ahead of time. We're thinking, this is like no fault divorce, right? We have these back doors that are built into things 
So I'm going to make these commitments. I'm going to make these promises. I'm going to make these covenants. But I want to make sure that there's a way out when I decide that I don't want to keep my commitment. And so we're pretty mobile. And so um, if, if the job gets hard, we leave the job. Uh, if the family gets hard, we leave the family. If the church gets hard, we leave the church. And so it's everything you can do to get people to actually stay in marriages when they're difficult. And as well as a pastor, I experience this. It's very difficult to get people to stay in churches when the church is difficult. Because if it's not what you want and it's not what you like or someone ticks you off or something bothers you or it's not going the way that you would have it go, guess what? There's a hundred churches down the road. Why don't I just get up and go there? Well, sometimes God wants you to stay in the hard place. For those of you who jump around like that, what you're actually doing is stunting your growth. You may be stunting your growth. God means to mature you and to grow you and to sanctify you. And in chasing the greener grass, not always, but at times you end up pitching your tent near Sodom. This is what Lot did. Abraham gave him the choice. Where do you want to go? You want to go to like this scorched land or down there where the grass is green? And Lot's like, uh, I think I'll go where the grass is green. He says, well, listen, the people over there are very wicked and they do not love God. I'm not sure it'll be the best influence on your family. And he says, oh, we'll go and be missionaries. Did it go that way? It did not go that way. It did not go well. There's not a single convert. God ends up scorching both cities so that nothing can ever grow there again. It's probably buried under the Dead Sea today. The Dead Sea. Lot barely got out of there alive. But why did he go there originally? The grass was greener. Heading down to Egypt. But sometimes God says, I don't want you to move. I don't want you to go where it's easy. I want you to stay where it's difficult. And this is what he does with Isaac. He says, don't go any further. And then what does God do? Okay. God doesn't say, though, he could say when Isaac says, are you serious? Because this isn't very good here. And Egypt is like Club Med. It's sweet down there. That's where I want to go. Things are easier down there. And God doesn't say, listen, I want you to do it. I want you to do it because I said so. Like we tell our kids, right? Son, I need you to do this. Why? Because I'm your father. That's why. Because I said so. I mean, if anybody has a right to say that, it's God. And he does say that at times. right? He does pull that at times and says, stop. Just do what I said. Did you forget who you're talking to? But what does he do with Isaac? He encourages him. And he reassures him. He says, listen, I made a promise to your daddy. And the promise I made to your daddy is a promise to you and to your children after you. And he's telling Isaac, listen, I know I'm telling you to do something difficult right now. I know you're faced with a serious trial, but I love you. God is saying, I love you. I've got a plan for you. I'm going to take care of you. Trust me. So Isaac responds well to this and he stays put. Verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place, here's an interesting verse. Right, we've been here before in chapter 12 and chapter 20. We've got to go here again. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. So we've got to understand what's going on here. For he feared to save my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. We're going to talk about verse 7 for a while. 
Uh, it's important to understand what's going on here. There are different ways to interpret this verse. There's been two major ways to interpret this verse historically. And we've got to decide. I've decided. Now you've got to decide where you're going to land. Because it does affect, it does affect how you interpret Isaac's life. And, and how you view the story that is God's plan and God's providence working through him. So this is the third time this has happened in Genesis. This is like a common thing where a guy tells people that his wife is his sister because she's attractive. This doesn't happen today, which is why we need to look at this. All the men aren't walking around with attractive wives saying, uh, she's my sister, she's not my wife, I just want to be clear. That is not happening. So why is it happening here? Isaac's dad did it twice. Okay, Abraham did it twice. Once while he was in Egypt before Pharaoh. That's in chapter 12. And once while he was, guess where? In Gerar before Abimelech, who is probably this guy's grandfather. Okay, so Abraham did this with Abimelech, who was most likely the grandfather to the Abimelech that we find here, our Abimelech, in Genesis chapter 26. And Abraham told us when he was confronted by Abimelech, so we rewind, because Abraham told us why he did this. And he actually told Abimelech that this is a plan that my wife and I made when we first set out from our homeland. We set out from our homeland and we were heading into all of these godless societies. And so our plan was everywhere we went. And Abraham said, because his wife Sarah was so beautiful and so attractive, is everywhere they went, he said, here's the deal, okay? You're going to say, I'm your brother, and I'm going to say, you're my sister. Okay, why are they doing that? Well, if we go back and understand the culture that they lived in, one of the things that we're maybe surprised by, but that we understand, is in these godless societies, the cultures were likely to deal better with an attractive woman's brother than they would her husband. Because this is how it typically go. If she was if she was married and they wanted her, then the husband was an obstacle that there was no choice other than to remove him. And how would you remove him? You'd whack him. Throw him in a trunk, go out in a field, dig a hole, problem solved. Now she's available all of a sudden. However, if she had a brother, not as threatening, not an obstacle that needs to be removed but a man who needs to be negotiated with. We saw this when the trusted servant went and found Isaac, his wife, Rebecca. Do you remember who he, he went to her home and who did he negotiate with? Her dad? No. Bethuel was alive. Her dad was alive. But who did he negotiate with? Laban, who was Rebecca's what? Brother. Because that's what would be typical and traditional. So, Abraham and Sarah devised this plan that when we go from town to town, we're going to say that. And if there's somebody would like to have you, they're going to have to negotiate with me. That gives us time to plan or to get out of here, whatever we need to do. But if we just go in and say, hey, I'm the husband, the guys are going to get a plan together. And I'm going to disappear. And that's not going to go well for either one of us. So if someone wanted Sarah or Rebecca and she had a brother... The customary thing to do would be to negotiate terms with the brother. Now, when Abraham and Sarah walked into a town and Abraham said, she's my wife, technically, do you remember that? Technically, was he lying? He was not. 
technically he was telling the truth. He was telling a half-truth. Not the whole truth, but he was telling a half-truth because they had the same father. So they were brother and sister. So technically, we share the same father. He told Abimelech that. So, so we are brother and sister. Now, if you want to get really technical, because okay, here we have now Isaac and Rebekah. They do not have the same father. They do not have the same mother. So they're not biologically related. But if you want to get really technical and use the language of Scripture, they are, in fact, brother and sister because she is Isaac's sister by adoption. Adoption by God the Father. Okay? So they both know the Lord. They both love the Lord. And so they are before, they are husband and wife, they are brother and sister. I mean, you understand this now, in our day and age, if you're a Christian. Okay? If, if a Christian man and a Christian woman who are part of Veritas, they get married, they become husband and wife. But what were they before they were husband and wife? They were brother and sister. They were really brother and sister. Now, then they become husband and wife. Now, which relationship is foundational? Husband and wife, brother and sister. Brother and sister. Which relationship is more important? Brother and sister. Because which relationship is temporal and which relationship is eternal? The husband and wife relationship, though it is a beautiful relationship, though it is a wonderful relationship, it's a temporal relationship. It is only for this lifetime. Jesus makes it very clear that we will not be married in heaven. That bums me out. And I want to be married to my wife in heaven. That doesn't sound good to me. But I trust God. He definitely knows what is best. But Kristen and I, we will be brother and sister in heaven. So that's the relationship that's going to last. Husband and wife relationship, very important. Important in this lifetime to display right, the relationship of Christ and his church to the world. Very important. But not actually not the most important relationship. Now, there was an understanding of this in Old Testament days. This isn't a New Testament thing where Paul tells Timothy, hey, you treat each other like brother and sister. In fact, if you read the book of Song of Solomon, on five different occasions, the man addresses his bride as my sister, my bride. And never in reverse. Never my bride, my sister. But my sister, my bride. My sister, my bride. What is that? It's an understanding of the foundational relationship that endures for a lifetime. The brother-sister relationship. So technically, can he say that and mean it? Well, maybe. Maybe. But here's the point we need to make and how we, we, I would like you to read this text. Isaac and Abraham both get a really bad rap for this. Okay? The way it's commonly, I would think, commonly interpreted is that Abraham was a bonehead when he did this twice. Isaac's a bonehead when he's doing it. Abraham was sinning against his wife. He was lying. There's no excuse for it. Isaac is following in the footsteps of his father, doing the same thing, and both of them are in sin. They're concerned about their own skin. It's an act of cowardice. They don't care about anyone but themselves. And then typically, Abimelech's, both Abimelech's is portrayed as saints. As good guys who do good and overlook the sin. And so it's preached this way. So look at the, 
the righteous guy, Isaac, who loves God and how miserable a sinner he is. And then look at the miserable sinner over here, Abimelech, who doesn't know God and yet how well he behaves. And it's meant then preached that way to bring conviction to us as believers to make sure that we live in a way that is above reproach. Now you could go there with the text, but I don't think that's actually what's being taught here. Now there is no doubt that they're using deception. Okay, even if we get around the whole brother-sister thing, I mean, clearly they're not, they're not putting everything on the table. So deception is used. It's often assumed that Isaac here is deceiving Abimelech because he's being a coward. But a couple things to note if that's true. If that's the case, it's worth paying attention to that there is absolutely zero stated moral judgment from God on this matter. And both times Abraham does this as well. There is no stated moral judgment from God. God doesn't come on any terms and say what you're doing is wrong. This is not right. God doesn't bring any consequences to Abraham or Isaac when they do this. God isn't even silent on it. Sometimes when God is silent on something, you can make an argument from that silence that it is a disapproval on God's part. In fact, what you see in Abraham on both occasions and with Isaac on this one occasion is what immediately follows this deception is God pouring out blessing. Which is kind of weird timing. If Isaac is in sin against God. You're going to see that what happens is immediately following this, Isaac is going to be blessed. I think what Isaac is doing and what his dad was doing and what his dad probably taught him to do was looking for the best way to protect his wife. Looking for the best way to protect his wife. You could say he's being selfish because he's only worried about his own skin and if he says that he's her husband, he's going to be killed. But if he's killed, that's also not going to go well for Rebecca. Why? Because he's her protector. He's the one whom God is charged to shield her and to protect her. And so what is the tactic that Isaac uses to protect his wife? Deception. Now here's what's interesting about that. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3 where the husband failed to protect his wife, what did the enemy do to injure his wife. What was the tool he used? Deception. Now there's a pattern throughout the rest of your Bible and certainly a pattern throughout Genesis that when the bride is threatened, the groom takes responsibility and protects her through the use of deception. It's given the serpent a taste of his own medicine. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Two can play this game. The reality is, the biblical reality is, is that on occasions, deception is acceptable. Now, we're not going to make the sermon about that. That's not going to be the main point of the sermon because you're thinking this is the best one since you told husbands to spend a lot of money on their wives. <laughs> anyway, two for two now. So we're not going to make that the, the whole point here, but we do need to understand 
uh, what's taking place here. And for those of you who see very black and white and who like to see black and white, and that's typically how it's read. Nope, he lied. You can't ever lie. You can't ever deceive. Bad Isaac, bad Isaac, good Abimelech, good Abimelech. The problem is you're going you're gonna to read this wrong. And you're not going to see it clearly. And we might bring up the Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment says, do not lie. But the Ninth Commandment actually does not say, do not lie. And we're not just playing with words here. It says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. It speaks to motive. It speaks to intent. And the idea is you're looking to preserve yourself and injure someone else and even destroy your neighbor. Which, by the way, is most of what our lying is. It's most of what our lying is. Scripture is actually full of examples. You can study this. The Bible is full of examples of people deceiving others for good. Full of examples of God's people deceiving others for good. Not using deception to destroy their neighbor, but using deception to further good and peace. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 10, when he sends out his disciples, he tells them to be smart and wise and shrewd as what? Serpents. Now, what are serpents all the way back to Genesis 3 known for? Deception. Deception. Be wise, he says. Be careful. Think about your words. Do not sin, but use your words well. And we see here that Isaac uses deception. There's other examples. Remember the lies that were told by the Hebrew midwives in Egypt. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 1, 15 through 20. Right? Pharaoh told all the midwives, hey, listen, whenever a baby boy is born, I want to know about it because we're going to kill the baby. Well, did they go and tell the, hey, another one, another one, another one? No, they deceived. They deceived the king. They deceived Pharaoh. Why? To protect the children. When, when Moses' mother gave birth to him, did she do what she was required to do and present her son to Pharaoh's army and servants so that her son could be slaughtered? Or did she hide him for several months? What was she doing when she was hiding him for several months? She was deceiving. Or you can read about Rahab. Rahab, remember two of the Israelites come and she puts them up and she hides them and then she sends them on their way and she's going to help them win this battle. And then when her own countrymen come looking for the spies, does she just say, well, I cannot lie and just lay it out for them? No, no, she deceives them. Or you can go to Joshua chapter 8 and you read about uh, Joshua luring the people out of the city of Ai. But he deceived them to win that victory. Do you remember? Because they put a, a few of them in front of the city and, said, and, and, you know, and started throwing rocks. Say, hey, come and get us. And they looked out over the wall, you know, and there's like five of them. And they said, I think we can take them. And so they opened the gates and the whole army emptied out of the city. What they didn't know is that Joshua had 30,000 men hiding in the bushes, literally behind the city. What was he using? Deception. Deception. He didn't have some conscience attack when they were coming out of the city and saying, hold on, I need to come clean on something. Turn around. This is not going to go well for you. I want all my cards on the table. You know, let's make this a fair fight. No. He's actively working to deceive them. Or finally, there's more. You can go to the book of Judges. You can read in chapter 4 and 5 about a woman that God calls blessed named Jael. And at the battle of Megiddo, she deceives Sisera an enemy leader, and lures him into her home and offers him rest. And when he falls asleep, 
She drives a tent peg through one ear, out the other, and nails into the floor. And then God sings a song in the next chapter saying how great she is. (laughs) Not a lot of girls named Jael today. (laughs) But a pretty cool name. With great meaning. Okay, so we see this pattern. So we've got to figure this out and do something about it. There is deception clearly used in the Bible. Augustine was the first one in the 4th century who actually began to categorize deception and categorize lies and say, listen, this is more complicated than this. Um, And then Martin Luther affirmed three of those five. He broke them into these categories. Playful lies, obliging lies, destructive lies, wartime deception, and evangelistic deception. There's playful lies. Jokes that you could make a case are not necessarily sinful. Right? You say things that are, are not true. You use sarcasm. Or actors. What are actors doing? They're pretending to be somebody and something they're not. Okay? We don't usually freak out and say they're breaking the ninth commandment. We pay money to watch them do this. A second category would be obliging lies. Okay, so many theologians have said that you're actually obligated at times to lie. That you're obligated to lie. If it means that you will be protecting someone or keeping someone from sinning, it is perfectly appropriate to lie. There were all kinds of obliging lies being told during World War II to protect those who were under Nazi Germany's persecution. Lies being told all over the place. Why? To prevent sin from happening and to protect people. Deception was used. Destructive lies. Again, the category that most of our lies fall into. So I don't mean to encourage you to begin categorizing all your lies and come up with, oh, I think they actually fit in, in justifying all the sin. Because the, the truth is that 99% of our lies typically are going to fall into destructive lies. It's to hurt someone or it's to preserve myself. Self-preservation. Those are destructive lies. They're false witness against your neighbor. They're hating your neighbor. Not loving God and your neighbor as you love yourself. Wartime deception. The story of jail would be an example of that. Wartime deception. Deception is appropriate in war. And we see it in Scripture. When there's an enemy who has declared their murderous intent for you, all bets are off. You're not worried about playing fair at that point. Deception can be used. Lies can be told. And is, biblically and historically. And finally, one category that Augustine named was evangelistic deception. Very rare. Very rare. Deception used to bring someone to Christ. You're like, how does that, how does that work? Well, we have one example, at least in Scripture, of Nathan when he comes to David. David has committed grievous sin. And do you remember what Nathan does to convict David of his sin? He lies to him. He deceives him. He makes up a story and he gets David to believe it and get all all ticked off about it. And then he says, that's not a true story. You're the guy. You're the guy. Because David gets mad and wants to go kill the guy. He's like, oh, well, look in the mirror. It's you. And God uses that lie, that deception, to actually turn the heart of David and to bring conviction. So. Now we're at risk of this being the worst sermon ever preached with the main point being that like deception is a fruit of the Spirit. So we need to be very careful and say, okay, where's the gospel in this? Where is Christ in this? I mean, a sermon should never have um, a, a moral lesson as the point. 
It's always Christ, always the gospel. That needs to be the point of every sermon. So it, it should never be a moral lesson, especially if the moral lesson is encouraging Christians to make more frequent use of deception. So we're saying this because we're just exegeting the text, which means dissecting and pulling out we need to understand what the Scripture says. And I wanted to give all of that because the typical way this is read, I think, is wrong. I think it's typically read wrong. And we just make assumptions really quick because when we see the lie and we see deception, we assume that it's wrong. We assume that it's sinful. And I want to give you a background so that you can at least entertain the idea that biblically, maybe this actually isn't sin. And maybe this is Isaac doing his best to protect his wife. And it's going to change how we read the rest of the story. Okay, so this is what he's done, though. Regardless, he has, he has lied. He has deceived. And then we come to verse 8. We come to verse 8. Now, remember, so Abimelech's going to see something here. And remember, Abimelech believes that they are uh, husband and wife or brother and sister? Brother and sister. When, he had, when, when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Or, or to Abimelech, he saw him laughing with Rebekah, his sister. Uh, if you have an ESV, that's what it says. And, and it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't help us to really see the big deal here. Abimelech's going to freak out. And you think, well, why is he freaking out? He's a brother and sister, and they're laughing together. I've seen brothers and sisters laugh together. Well, this word can have other meanings. You have the King James Version. It says that they were sporting with each other. Now, that wasn't helpful for me. I still didn't get it. That's still like playing catch. What does that, what does that mean? Now, if you have the NIV, it says caressing. Okay. Enough said? All right. That's not right. That's not right. He looks out and sees brother and sister caressing. There's a problem here because he gets that this is not what I've been told. I've been, I've been duped. I've been deceived. So here's his reaction, verse 9. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, this is great because now he's honest. <laughs> he's honest now. Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. I'm just going to come clean with you. You're right. She's my wife, and I was worried that if you knew that I was her husband, you were going to kill me. If you killed me, I wouldn't be able to protect her. I believe that's what he's saying. She says, that's why I did it. That's why I deceived you. That's why I lied to you. Because if you take me out, her protection is gone. And the only thing to happen to my girl. Verse 10. Abimelech said, so listen to what he says here carefully. Because again, what what it usually happens with these stories is, is if you paint Abraham as the bad guy when he does this, and you paint Isaac as the bad guy when he does it, then you start to see the, these, these Abimelechs as just innocent sort of bystanders. I mean, they've been deceived. They've been lied to. This wasn't right. They've been sinned against. And we start to cast them in a more positive light. But that is not the case here. Listen to what he says. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. This gives you an idea of what this culture was like because this is basically what he says. If, if one of my people would have raped your wife, it would have been your fault because you didn't tell us that she was your wife. Is there a problem with that statement? There's a big problem with that statement. He doesn't talk anything about marriage here, right? If, what, if, if one of my men would have lain with your wife, 
In other words, outside of marriage, outside of covenant, outside of relationship, this would be rape. If they would have just taken your wife to be their own, it would be your fault because you weren't honest with us. No, it doesn't matter if she's my sister or my wife or my friend or an acquaintance. You may not rape her. But this is the godless culture that Isaac finds himself in. Verse 11. So, dramatic reaction here. Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now that's an interesting response, I thought. I mean, if he's mad with this man who's just deceived him and almost gotten him into a lot of trouble, you know, why doesn't he just kick him out? Why doesn't he kill him? Why doesn't he punish him? Instead, his reaction is he actually puts his hedge of protection around him as king and says, no one lay a hand on this husband and wife. What's going on here? I think he's remembering a story his grandpa told him. (laughs) You remember that story? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're not brother and sister. You're husband and wife. What's your dad's name? You see that, right? Abraham. Not again. He, He remembers what grandpa said, right? When this man came into our kingdom, they were husband and wife. They pretend to be brother and sister. God plagued all of our people. Every one of us. Women were not having children. Women were not getting pregnant. God closed the womb of my entire kingdom until we made it right with Abraham. Does he want that to happen in his kingdom? So what does he do? He issues a decree as king. He says, you don't touch this man or this woman. Don't get near them. He, he offers his protection. Okay, so, I, so just see God's providence working in Isaac's life. See God's providence working in Isaac's life. This is not a charmed life. This is up and down. This is up and down. There's a famine. His family's dying. He's got a plan to go to Egypt. God says, stop. Don't go down to Egypt. So he stays put. He tries his best to protect his wife. And then he's caught. Assuming that he's dead. His wife's dead. The game is over. The charade is over. And yet God uses the history to actually compel the king to now put his hedge of protection around Isaac and his wife. Trusting God, being faithful to God. Verse 12. Here he goes, he's going to go out, his life's going to go up again. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. Okay, any rebuke from God or a prophet or anyone for what he did in deceiving King Abimelech? No. What does God do? He blesses him. He blesses him. I think God's saying, well done. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. So it's going well. He's finally getting some traction. His family's had to move all over the place, but they finally settled. They have the king's protection. God's adding wealth to him. Everything's going good, right? His investments are working well. He has favor with his neighbors. Everything he touches is turning to gold. Life is well. And then what happens? 
Now he's become so blessed that the people around him start hating him because he's so blessed. You've, you've been on one end of that, I'm sure. You get engaged. You're blessed. And all of a sudden, the gal who's not engaged doesn't like you anymore. Oh, that's such good news. I'm so happy for you. That's just great. Guy who's working hard, working extra hours, can't get anywhere in his job. His friend doesn't do anything. He's lazy, makes one right move. It goes through the roof. He's sitting on a pile of cash. Oh, that's great. I'm so happy. Praise the Lord. He's blessing you, brother. No more calls, right? No more text messages. Can't find him. He has pictures of you on his walls with holes in them. You don't understand what's going on. He envies, right? He envies. So here he is. He gets a break. It's going well. And now he's back in trouble with the Philistines because they start to envy him. So what do they do? This is so messed up. Verse 15. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. That's just mean. So how do you provide for yourself? Well, you give food. How do you, you need water. How do you get water? Okay. You dig a well. I don't know what it's like to dig a well. But that sounds really hard. I mean, there's no like auger or drill or machinery. I don't need, you just like sticks and they're digging a hole. We have a well at my house. Okay, we don't have city water, so we have a well. And all I know about my well, I knew they use a lot of machinery to dig it, but it goes 300 feet underground and plugs into an aquifer, and that's where we get our water from. I can't imagine digging a hole 300 feet deep so that I could get water. So this is what Abraham does to provide for him and to provide for his family. So what do the Philistines do? We really don't like how blessed you are. So they start bringing in backhoes and pushing dirt in the wells. And then Abimelech comes to him. Abimelech said to Isaac, verse 16, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we are. Envious. Jealous. So now it goes back down. Isaac was up. Now he's down. Going well. Things are great. And now he's getting kicked out again. He's got to uproot his family again. And he's got to move again. Verse 17. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. Okay, it's going well again. Verse 19, but when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they contended with him. So he names the well contention. He can't get a break. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So he named that well Sitna, which means enmity fighting. And he moved, verse 22, from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Do you hear him? Okay. We made it. 
Now the Lord has provided for us and we will be, he's looking at the future, it's going to go well now, we will be fruitful in the land. Finally, finally, maybe this is it. Maybe it's turning. Verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So here it is, the Lord's timing again. He comes and brings his word and brings his encouragement when Isaac needs it most. He was in a famine the first time. Not sure how he was going to make it, how his family was going to make it. God came and reassured him of his promises. Here he is now. He's been driven out of one land. He's been driven out of another land. He's digging wells. The wells get filled up. He's finally settled in a spot. And God comes to him and reminds him again and encourages him again. And how does he encourage him? This is how God encourages Isaac. If you're a believer, this is how God will encourage you. And this is not how God will encourage you. God does not come to Isaac and say, Listen, Isaac, you're great. You are great. Have you forgotten how special you are? God does not do this. Isaac, you are amazing. You're amazing. I mean, I've seen some faithful people. But you, Isaac, you are the cream of the crop. I mean, your track record, your resume is brave and bold. Be encouraged, Isaac. I mean, this is how we encourage. That's how we encourage, just naturally. That's certainly how the world encourages, because we've got nothing else. We've got nothing else. Some of you have found that encouragement so lacking. Because you know the truth. You know the truth. I'm not great. I'm not great. I'm not clean. I'm not good. I know the dirt in my life. I know the filth. I know the sin. If you knew me like I know me, you wouldn't say that. But it's the best we can do, isn't it, to try to encourage each other. Think good thoughts about yourself. I don't know about you. I stopped being able to do that a long time ago. Unless I'm just in a state of delusion. This is really hard. It's really hard. There's some, I think some good things, some good thoughts. I'm just faced with, oh, but this and that and this and that. It's not good. It's not good. So how does God encourage Isaac? Well, this is his opening line. I am the God of Abraham, your father. So what is he setting Isaac's focus on? Himself? What a good heart he has? How great he is? No, he sets his focus on God. How do we encourage one another? We should set our focus on God. Don't tell each other things like you're great and it's going to get better because you're not great and it's probably not going to get better. (laughs) And they'll think you're a liar. But you can focus them on God because God's great and God's faithful and God's true. Fear not. Why? For I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And then Isaac's good. He builds an altar, pitches his tent and digs a well. Okay? So it's getting back to work. He's good. Thank you, God. Brought the encouragement he needed. Now, here's what you need to 
Remember, Christian, you can have a, a, a moment like Isaac had anytime you want. Anytime you want. Because we have God's Word ministered to us right here in this book. His holy, holy Word. Isaac didn't have that. He did not have that. He had to wait for God to come to him visibly and audibly and bring him encouragement. You do not need to wait for God to come to you visibly and audibly. In fact, when he comes visibly and audibly, he's going to be on a horse. And he's going to come and he's going to bring all things to an end. But God comes to us now through his word. That means that when you're discouraged and when the wells are getting filled and when your enemies are after you and when nothing seems to be going right and your circumstances are nothing near what you wanted and you're suffering and you're in pain and it feels like God's not working for your good and it feels like God is not for you but He's against you and it feels like He's not with you but you're all on your own. You can have a moment like Isaac had anytime you want. How gracious God has been and how blessed we are that we can open this book and we can be reminded at any moment of how good God has been, how much He loves us, and how faithful He is. And this is what we should do. We turn to the Lord over and over and over again. Verse 23. From there He went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to Him the same night. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath his advisor and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me far away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Well, well, well. Look what we have here. Oh, I remember you guys. The ones that kicked me out. The ones that hated me. You're the ones that buried my wells. Good to see you again. What do you want? Oh, you know, we thought about it. We thought about it, and we'd really like to be friends. We'd really, in fact, we'd like it to be official. Now, why are they doing this? Right? They're remembering history. We don't know your God, but we know He's mighty. We know He's powerful, and He seems to really like you. And so you seem like a good person to be a friend with. We saw that whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing. And we'd like to avoid that. So can we make a, they're talking all this, can we make a covenant? Can we make oaths? Can we make promises to one another? Can we write this down on paper? Would you mind if we had it notarized? So, uh, he says, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So, verse 30, Isaac's gracious. So, he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servant came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So here it is, right? It is is up and down, up and down, up and down. This is God's providence, His plan in Isaac's life. Is it a good plan? It is a good plan. Is it for his good? It is for his good. 
Is it a difficult plan? A lot of difficulty. Famine, near death, difficult to provide for his family, seasons where nothing is going well. But now, now, I mean, his enemies come to him. They want to make a covenant with him. Right? God has just reaffirmed his promises. He's had a nice devotional time with the Lord. Things are good with the Philistines, who are a powerful army, really the only ones that could do anything to him. And then right then, his servants all come in and say, guess what? We just found a sweet, gushing well. There's more water than we know what to do with. So if you're Isaac, you're thinking, okay, we made it. Finally, and this is how we think, we got through that season. And here I am now. I'm on top. It's going well. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 34. When Esau, remember who Esau is, that's their boy. That's their boy. Two sons, Esau and Jacob. When Esau was 40 years old, he took, took Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Oh, just when you think you got a break. So here it is, physically, materially, going well. Okay, circumstances coming together. Things are clicking. Provision is there. Relationships with the world is there. Reputation with outsiders is there. Things are going well. They're praising God. They're thankful to God. But they're also sorrowful because then they, then they remember. Then they remember their boy. And the choices he's making going after women who do not know God, who do not love God, who will not be good for Him. Marrying one of them, marrying two of them, running from God, remembering God's Word even, where God said, listen, it's not going to go well for your son Esau. I know this is hard to hear. God tells him this is not going to go well. Okay, I've chosen Jacob. I'm going to be merciful to him. I'm not going to be merciful to Esau. I'm going to let Esau do what he wants. And what Esau wants to do is sin. So what does that do for mom and dad? Makes their life bitter. Bitter. Most moms and dads would give anything just to know their children love the Lord. I don't care what you do in this lifetime, God, as long as I see him on the other side. As long as I'm with him for eternity. But they know that's not going to happen. And they're reminded of it every time word comes that Esau is making another godless choice with his life. And what does that do for mom and dad? It makes their life bitter. So here it is, right? Everything's going well around them. And then the family's a mess. And the family is painful. And in the family, there is suffering. You know, so we have, we use phrases like seasons. You're going through a tough season. That makes it more bearable, doesn't it? Because what does that, what does that mean? That means oh, there's an end to it. Now it's true, what you're going through is, is a season and there will be an end to it. But the end might not be until you die. That may just be the end of the season. That, that may be it. There, there's no guarantees. 
we don't want our hope to be, okay, what I'm going through right now is a season and soon this season shall pass and then there will be a good season. We, we, we can't say that as if we looked into some sort of a crystal ball. We can't say that as if we had insight into the future unless what we mean is, well, either this is going to change in this lifetime or you're going to see Jesus and it's going to get a lot better really fast. And it's going to be good forever. But this life is really short. The truth is, friends, there's some of you you, you need to hear this. Your hope isn't that a, a, a season will be short and that a season will come to pass. Your hope is Jesus. Your hope is God. That His promises are true and that one day you'll see Him face to face. Because your season may be short and it may be long. I'm sure Isaac was tempted every time he got up on top of that mountain to covet the mountaintop. And then he's back in a valley and back on a mountaintop and back on a valley. And for many of you, that's your life. And for many of you, there's a lot more valleys than mountaintops. And I don't want you to think that means that God doesn't love you. Because here's how it's going to work. At some point, if you love the Lord and if you're faithful to the Lord, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to be there a really long time. Really long time. There's going to come a point where you've been there a million years and you're going to look back on this suffering. Like that will be on the calendar in heaven. There will be it. We'll be there a million years. Because how long are you going to be there? Forever. So there will come a moment where you're in heaven and you're like, huh, we've been here one million years today. I died one million years ago. We've been here one million years. Do you think you're going to be there for one million years and look back and mourn over your 20? I mean, life is what? It's a vapor. You see how that works? I mean, two million, three million. You're not going to look back and mourn over your season in this life where it was hard and difficult. This is why Scripture calls them momentary afflictions. You're like, it is not momentary. It's been 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, my whole life. This is forever. It is not momentary. Well, when you've been there for 3 million years, you'll get what he meant by momentary. It's a blip. It's a blip. But here's the deal. You will look back on those 20. That's going to cause you to love God more. going to make your worship more pure and genuine because you're going to remember his faithfulness you're going to look back on a million years of him making it up to you a million fold you're going to have great love for him you're going to have great affections for him they'll be absolutely maximized and it will be against the backdrop of a life before eternity when there was suffering and there was trials. Friends, and as, as best I understand the Word, as best I understand it, the people who are getting the most out of heaven are those who suffer the most. I mean, that just seems so clear in God's Word. If you can 
give me a different point of view, I'd like to hear it. But Scripture seems to make it so clear, if I say it plainly, that those who are going to get the most out of heaven are those who suffer the most in this life. It doesn't make us gluttons for punishment in this life, but it certainly helps us to endure. And all of a sudden when we hear that, well, no, if you're suffering, it's because God loves you. That makes sense now, doesn't it? He loves you. He's more concerned with your eternity than the vapor. He's preparing you for something greater. Good God. Great God. Gracious God. Work in His plan with Isaac. Work in His plan with you and me. Let's pray. Our Father, You've been good to us and gracious to us. Far beyond what we deserve. And You've been merciful, God, in that You haven't given us what we deserve. So thank You. Those of us who are here today, whom you have called and who have seen light in darkness and who have seen truth and, and believed it and are transformed because of it. God, our song is thank you. And we love you. We praise you. Don't let us become untethered from all we have to be thankful for and grateful for, God. Remind us every day of how good you have been and how good you are. And Lord, we pray that that would well up within us praise and worship and devotion because that's what you deserve, God. And our hope and our desire is that we would be in sync with you, that we would want you to be glorified and honored. So be glorified today through our worship, through communion, through our prayers and through your word. Be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.